Hello and welcome to the Interaction Lab podcast brought to you by City Interaction Lab and the Centre for Human Computer Interaction Design at City University of London. I'm Stuart Scott, Interaction Lab Manager. In the Interaction Lab podcast we'll be speaking to experts in HCI and related fields from academia and industry and we hope this will provide food for thought for friends of the centre. Today we're speaking to Ruth Darcy Daniel, a user experience researcher at Shell. Ruth has a strong background in remote user research and is going to be sharing her experience uh, with us today. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. Hi, Stuart. Thanks very much for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you. Thanks a lot for reaching out on LinkedIn and offering to sort of uh, share your knowledge with the world. Oh, delighted to do it. Thank you. Um, so I, I think b- before we go into the sort of the meat of it about remote user testing, it'd be great to find out a bit more about you, Ruth. Um, could you, do you mind introducing yourself for us? Oh, of course. Sure. Um, What can I tell you? Um, I used to be an IT trainer, mostly with bespoke software, um, and I did a sidestep into user experience research. Um, Might get a chance to uh, cover that in a little bit more depth later on. Um, But I'm quite a detailed person, so I really enjoy getting to the nub of something, pinning it down and getting real clarification. Drives some people mad, but um, in other areas, it's it really is valuable. Um, I live in Scotland now. A partner and I moved up here to be closer to the mountains. We're both climbers, generally outdoors people. Um, Absolutely love it here and so does our dog Um, and actually just can't wait to get back out there when we're all able to uh, enjoy all the wonderful green spaces around us. Um, What else? What else? Uh, I love learning new things, Um, not just academic stuff, but a wide range really, lots of interests. Um, recently, actually, I've just finished a beginner's course in working with stained glass at the local college. And I really love that. I could see myself getting into that uh, in a big way if I had the opportunity and time. Um, and right now I'm actually looking forward to the warmer weather. I want to get out in the garden. Um, nothing quite like picking your own produce. So I love growing tomatoes and nothing terribly exotic, but just the day-to-day stuff that I love and uh, enjoy. Um, getting it straight from the plant to the plate. <laughs> um, and I love cooking and baking too, actually, but I just wish I had more time to experiment. Uh, yeah, that's um, probably about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, we all know you very well now. Um, and uh, it's it's interesting that you mentioned right at the start that you, you, you kind of sojourned from UX training, yeah, sorry, uh, just IT training in general to more UX uh, work. And I think I can understand how that transition might have happened simply because you spend a lot of time training people on software that wasn't well designed in the first place, learning about users' frustrations, which, and you're like, well, why can't I fix that sort of thing? Mm, um, but I think you, you mentioned we'll probably unpack that in a bit. Going back to your, the rest of what you mentioned, um, it sounds like you're living the good life up there, um, you know, with your sort of homegrown produce. It must be quite nice to be able to be self-sufficient in these times yes yes absolutely um trying to get hold of little plug plants is not easy right now so it's back to seeds so there's going to be a bit of a delay um and uh window sills are packed at the moment with little seedlings just showing themselves cool and uh yeah you'll be buying some uh, sheep from the nearest farm or something that's part of the master plan a bit further right. down the line i think <laughs> I, I don't think i'd appreciate my astroturf out in the back but um yeah <laughs> I mean, we would we were worried about getting a tortoise because it might be deprived of uh, any natural light. But anyway, um, so you mentioned so, so you've transitioned into UX from your sort of training career. What, what's your current role at the moment? Well, right now I'm a UX researcher with Shell International um, and um, I've been uh, with Shell for a year now. Um, and I work with a small design team as well. So we feed off each other very well. 
Um, I provide the insights that informs the problem statements. They get out there and try and come up with solutions, which I then go and test. So it's very, very cyclical. Um, and actually, at the moment, I'm creating a UX baseline around wayfinding. Um, and by that, I mean all the components and cues that people are going to use to orient orient themselves and navigate from place to place on different websites, um, our different websites. We have quite a lot. Um, what we're trying to find out at the moment is what's working well currently, what needs to be improved, and actually what can we really, really enhance um, and optimize. Um, I've also built in some UX metrics, a framework that I put together based around Google Heart, and that's so that we really can measure the impact of any future design changes um, that we make further down the line. So exciting times. That's really cool. It sounds like a, a great role to be part of that process where you're informing the design and testing the design and sort of really iterating through the, through different versions. Um, and just out of interest, you mentioned Shell has got multiple sites. Like, What sort of audiences are they designed for? Are they kind of, uh, you know, big sort of uh, chemical purchasers or is it the consumer sites or is it everyone that you're touching on? It's, it's really varied. Um... There are international country sites. There's global. Wow. Uh, we have investors, sections for investors. We have motorists. We have careers uh, section with lots of graduate schemes as well. Um, and then lots of information about sustainable, uh, sustainability and new energies and so on. So it really does cover quite a, a wide range. Uh, motorists in particular, that can be um, safety checks on vehicles, finding different lubricants or oils or uh, petrol stations or, or fuel stations around the country um, and a variety of loyalty schemes and things like that so it really right. is very broad so you're basically speaking to everyone and everyone anyone and everyone in this role there's, you know there's you're touching on all, all parts of shell as a business in time in yeah. time um, yeah eventually depending on the projects and things that's right as projects yeah. come in and um, there are other teams out there um, conducting research as well uh, but we're trying to align uh, doing our best just to not duplicate and to make sure that uh, we're feeding into each other and I'm, I'm uh, hoping to put together a research repository which means that we can really expand on the knowledge sharing cool so what inspired you to become a user researcher well, going back to um, the role of IT trainer, um, I mean, if, if I just think about it, it's, it's been about a decade. Um, I didn't really know that I was um, conducting UX research when I was an IT trainer. Um, I was gathering user feedback and sort of passing that to designers and developers so they could incorporate it into the next version. So I was really just sort of wearing the wrong hat, if you like. Um, I used to go into organizations where they were designing new bespoke software, and it was usually in-house. And it was about much more than just the software. Um, so context was very important. And I used to shadow people, understand their roles, what they needed to get done, so that I could actually figure out the different user groups and who needed what training, which bits of which system. Um, and then I'd actually start to design and deliver the relevant training uh, sessions to those different groups. But it was very rare in those days, about a decade ago, that the software had been tested with real end users. And so you see, understanding what they needed to achieve um, th those goals, so what we now would call the user journey, I'd often end up training a series of workarounds and then passing that feedback back to the designers and developers. 
You know, it'd be things like, oh, they don't notice the submit button or they don't understand the jargon in that dialogue box. Or maybe it's like the sequence um, of steps isn't logical to them. Um, and then as I started to get involved early in projects, I actually had a chance to influence the design from that end user's perspective. So you see, it was kind of a natural sidestep, really. Um, and as any UX researcher is going to know, education is an important part of that role anyway and so I've kind of kept hold of that so I'm still training I'm still helping people understand the importance of research and the different methodologies and so on whilst actually um, not in a classroom structured kind of way but still doing that whilst actually bringing uh, insights um, into designs as well. That's, that's great so it's like you basically come into it via stealth you were kind of your day job turned out to be doing a lot of UX work without you really knowing mm. And then yeah. suddenly you realise what you were doing. You're like, oh, great, this is this is my this is my calling. This is what I want to be doing. Um, and you kind of moved upstream to become more in, informative design, etc. Um, brilliant. So today we've come together to discuss remote user testing, as this is something that will be increasingly valuable in the weeks and months ahead. Do you mind just telling us all what remote user testing is? Yeah, sure. Um, in a nutshell, it's when your researcher and your participants are in different locations. Now that can be as far apart as the other side of the world in different time zones even. It could be just around the corner, but the idea is you're not actually sitting there side by side uh, in, in a face-to-face -face lab setting, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's important to point out that remote testing isn't just the unmoderated tests where participants complete just standard usability tests under their own steam. Um, it maybe used to be like that, um, and I do still come across that perception, but more and more the idea that you can run live sessions remotely really is getting traction. And probably the influx of remote collaboration tools in recent years, and especially right now with most of us working from home but needing to stay connected uh, with our colleagues, I think we're seeing much more of that. And I, I can see um, this becoming um, maybe the first choice in some cases. Um, live moderated sessions, they can actually be really close to the face-to-face -face lab setups these days. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It could end up being that, you know, why do we need to invest in a lab if we can mm. do, get as good quality from sort of remote moderated sessions? And I like the fact you, you mentioned that it, it isn't just about sort of getting people to do tasks remote, you know, on their own, because I think that is this uh, one perception, which I think is kind of people just throw money at that sort of unmoderated remote sessions without really considering the value that they might be bringing. And um, whereas, you know, you're not going to get the same value as if you've got an actual conversation going on, you can unpick what the user's doing by speaking to them, asking around what they've just done, elaborating on things, uh, which you'd get with a moderated session. Um, mm, that's right. I think there's a place for both, actually, and I do use both. And there are times when even as a face to face lab setup was available to me, I might still choose unmoderated um, task based right. remote session as well. Um, there are times when that's valuable, which I you know, perhaps can talk about in a while. Yeah, I look forward to hearing it, sort of you unpick this. Um, so how long have you been running remote user testing sessions and what made you specialise in this area? I would say pretty much as I got started with UX, um, I started 
working with remote sessions. Um, I actually worked uh, with a company who provided remote unmoderated testing. That was it. That's what they offered at that time. It was what there was the most demand for. And mm -hmm. it obviously it's very much evolved since then. But I used to help writing the tests, analyzing the insights and writing the reports. And I quickly understood the benefits of that. Um, and then, as I was saying, I have since opted for remote research even when I've had access to a lab, if that's been um, the most appropriate and um, for, for lots of different reasons. But now, of course, it's uh, yes, but is it is it moderated or unmoderated? Um, as I say, I, I really do think they've got their their relative places. Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I'm sure you'll unpack that in a bit. So from your past experience, uh, what's remote user testing commonly used for? Well, as we said before, it's often associated just with straight usability tests. And of course, that still stands. But it has evolved to a point where you can run kind of most types of research remotely now. Um, Task-based studies, probably still the most common, but even then you can get really rich insights by asking up follow-up questions, including surveys, where you can ask participants for reasons for their responses um, as well. And the range of what you can test is pretty much the same as face-to-face, -face, to be honest. So um, I've been testing with live sites, with prototypes, early sketches. Um, I've been doing uh, competitor analysis, uh, brand perception, all sorts, um, and actually using different devices and operating systems as well. So it lends itself to PCs and Macs, iPhones and iPads, or Android tablets and smartphones um, as well. Um, and actually, you can use different software as well through remote testing, um, software and apps for things like card sorting and tree testing, um, and actually digital whiteboards for creative stuff as well, which I'm really hoping to get to try out um, quite soon. Um, what else? I think, think there are other types of study, which this lends itself to as well. Diary studies, I mean, they're on the increase as well. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, those can be run as moderated or unmoderated as well. I do think there are some types of research that need to be run as moderated, still remote, but moderated. Things like in-depth interview, interviews where you really do need that flexibility and ability to probe around what particip uh, participants are saying um, and when you want them to be able to speak freely. And sometimes these are of a sensitive nature as well. Um, and so you need to be constantly um, maintaining the rapport that you've built with them and reassurance, which I don't think you can get from it being unmoderated. Um, but yeah, as I say, those can still be remotely. I think there are some others that are more challenging, but certainly doable. Focus groups, that's kind of where digital whiteboards and those collaboration tools would come in. Um, something I'd love to learn more about um, is about remote AR and VR um, experience testing, and I'm sure that's going to be on the increase as well. I can imagine that would be quite challenging to run, though, because of the hardware involved. I mean, it's hard enough getting it onto the headset, let alone streaming it remotely. Um, but I'm sure, you know, with 5G and God knows what coming in, it might get more, uh, you know, it might it yeah. might be possible. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, so that's it's interesting to hear the breadth of tools available. So this doesn't just cover remote user testing anymore. You're discussing kind of remote research in general now, aren't you? Absolutely. Kind of, yeah. And not just research, you mentioned whiteboards and things like that for design activities and card sorts and things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not just about sort of sitting with someone and asking them to do some tasks. You could do so much more remotely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and there's a giant toolbox available to people out there. And I think you'll you'll perhaps unpack on some of these later on as we go, um, depending on time and things like that. Um, so was there anything else you wanted to cover on that point before we move on? I don't think so. Cool. Um, so 
you mentioned a bunch of techniques there. How do you decide which technique to use? Well, I think there's various factors to take into account. Um, and that's when you're sort of trying to decide whether you're going to run sessions face to face or and then if it's remote is it moderated or unmoderated you know what is actually the best option mm-hmm. um, and then I think once you know what your research objectives are what the hypotheses are what is the stimuli um, you know what is it you're absolutely trying to find out then I think that helps to determine what is the best type of study um, and then that is going to obviously determine the best approach as well so what's the type of study the type of research and then what's going to be the best approach for that um, I think budgets are a big consideration. So a face-to-face setup is generally more expensive, especially if you haven't got your own suitable facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be a purpose-built lab, but it still takes a bit of setting up and uh, and organising. Um, and then that can actually be a bit time-consuming as well. You know, the logistics of actually getting participants on site as well uh, as all the recruitment that that would go with that. Um, I think turnaround times can be an important factor here, Um, especially agile projects, certainly in the team that I'm working with, where we need to work in sprints and we're probably trying to learn quickly. Um, I don't like the term fail quickly, but it is actually learn quickly and then make those changes. And let's just keep doing this very, very quick iterative testing. So getting Mm -hmm. that feedback on designs quickly, you know, and at regular intervals. Um, And I just generally find it quicker to set up and run remote sessions, analyze those insights and and get that moving, depending, of course, on on how it's set up. Um, What else? Trying to decide of a technique, I think reaching wider audiences um, with Shell International, you know, we are looking at worldwide um, and different time zones. So I think that's more easily achieved with remote research. I think that's a big plus there. And actually, I do go with unmoderated sessions if it's very straightforward, if it's very structured and task based. I think that's a good option. But I include metrics there as well and questions so that I do come away with an understanding of attitudes and motivations as well as just did they manage to complete a task or not or what were the pain points. So I think that's always helpful as well. Um, And I do actually send little reminders throughout the test for our participants to think aloud. Okay. Um, so that last point is quite interesting. So you go beyond just the purely functional side of can they complete the task to um, not only have they completed the task, but then how are they feeling about it and asking about sort of, I don't know, brand perception or, you know, sort of you go beyond just the nuts and bolts of can they finish it or not on what, with our moderated sessions by adding these questionnaires in there. Yes, absolutely. Um, often before I even show them anything, I will ask them, get get them into the mindset. Um, so I will actually ask them um, some questions around the topic. So, for example, if I was, let me just think, if I was doing some research for an online florist, mm-hmm. for an example, I might say, and they haven't seen anything yet, and I might just say, if you were looking to send a bouquet of flowers to a loved one for, and I may give a a reason uh, what what would you expect what would be the most important things to you what would make you choose one or over another how would you go about choosing which florist to use and so I would actually get all of that information up front so they're not influenced by any particular brand but it's got them into that well you know if you had to do that how would you go about it and what's yeah. important to you it also means that further down the line it's possible to then ask them given what you said was important to you, 
how does this experience that you've just had how does that measure up uh so it's kind of get their get their expectations and then yes. you see how well it matches those expectations it's exactly that brilliant yeah. yeah i mean that's i mean i do that a lot in my face-to-face sessions so it's interesting to hear that you can also do that in my moderated sessions as well yeah yeah um and some of the other points you discussed there was stuff like you know if you're testing with people internationally so you can you don't have to worry about sort of flying a team over there to test with them you can just do it remotely um time zones uh the budget and the logistics of actually getting human beings into a lab you know hiring a lab and all that stuff factors might lean people towards doing remote sessions instead um yeah i mean absolutely yeah i mean it seems like a lot of you know things to consider um cool uh was there anything else on that before we proceed uh not really just just uh again exploring what's possible with our moderated sessions um and i think that warm-up that you have at the beginning that you can achieve if you position it in the right way and starting with these nice exploratory questions and then drilling down to tasks or more specifics and then having, you know, some success criteria in there and um, uh, yeah, uh, some summary questions at the end as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you said mention warm up there, some people have asked because uh, we've asked some students to do some um, remote sessions because of the whole situation at the moment. And they were like, well, how do I do a warm up uh, remotely? You know, um, so what, any advice for that? I mean, I know we were meant to touch on this later, but as you mentioned it now. Um, no, that, no, that's absolutely fine. I think it, it you, you can include those sort of questioning um, as you would in a moderated test fa- mm-hmm. or face to face. I think you can still do that with unmoderated. I think you can say, oh, tell us a bit about, you know, or remember a time when or I think there are lots of ways that you can get people to just talk freely a little bit about themselves and about their their current interests or um, yeah I think there are ways of doing that when it comes to remote I don't see personally I don't see that as being very different if you've shared webcams um, and you've taken that time to to build up rapport uh, almost face to face remotely face to face I don't think that differs yeah so yeah, I mean you can just ask similar questions you would face to face um in a remote session and it would just do the same job basically. Yes, I, yeah. I believe so. And to be fair, before the recording even starts, you've already got the preamble of, Oh, is your Skype working? Yeah, 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 to sort of, you know, get mm-hmm. them warmed up as well. So, you know, that stuff is kind of implicit, but it's not actually you know it's not factored in really well I mean it, it's probably is for your planning but we'll get into that later mm. it probably um, becomes a bit automatic actually once you, you you become accustomed to it and you're a little more experienced exactly um so I mean that's just now we've unpacked what remote re- testing is and you know what would make you choose particular techniques um what are the drawbacks of conducting remote research um I, I think overall there are more benefits than there are drawbacks Mm-hmm. But there um, there are some considerations, certainly, and you mentioned it earlier on, Stuart, that with unmoderated sessions, you can't probe around what participants say or do, as we said earlier on, you know. Yeah. But it is possible to follow up them with them afterwards. So, you know, you can ask if that's OK at the beginning. Um, and actually, I do that sometimes. I will ask them if that's if that's in order. And then I will have maybe a short live conversation with them afterwards. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 basically planned into it. So it's like, you know, you're doing an unmoderated session, but, you know, we might want to ask you some follow up questions if you've we've seen anything particularly interesting. If so, could you leave your details and we'll 
getting get in touch and um, would that be like a separate incentive for that sort of thing um, or is that meant to be part of the session that they've just done yeah how would I think it depends. If it was um, a direct recruit, then I think it would only be fair to offer an additional incentive to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes you've got the um, the platforms that are offered by providers where they've got a panel of participants. So that's taken care of anyway. Okay. Um, and actually, there's some benefits there. And we're talking now whether it's um, moderated or unmoderated. Actually, there is that opportunity to follow up directly with a participant, even to, uh, to, to a point of being able to send them a clip and ask a few questions about it. So that could so be that I mean, to be fair, that's a, that's sort of strength over regular sessions because regular face-to-face mm -hmm. -face sessions, you literally have them for an hour, then They're you wave, wave them off and you might maybe 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 email them afterwards or something in a really obscure thing or phone them afterwards but mm. very rarely do people do that it's just literally that hour they're done so it's yeah. quite cool that you've got the facility within remote sessions to do this follow-up work and uh, that people are engaged enough to kind of respond to you I mean what's the response like when you do 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 that kind of thing um, it does vary. You can never guarantee. But I've found generally that if the session has gone well, if you felt you have built rapport, um, and I think most researchers will agree with me that um, participants aren't in it just for the money. They just do have a genuine um, motivation to actually share their experiences and, and their knowledge. So if that's gone well, then uh, they're usually willing to, to uh, elaborate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think mean, that's that's. Um, that's more of a case, I think. Um, I'm just trying to think. I've not really had much success if it's been face to face in a lab, but I, if it's been an enjoyable session, I have had more success when it's been remote. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, so it is possible. And like you say, if you've built that rapport with them, they're more likely to want to speak to you afterwards. Yeah, 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 for sure. Great. Um, so, so, I mean, were there any more drawbacks of remote set research? Um, I don't think so, really. I think there's a lot to be said for conducting research in users' more natural surroundings, you know, mm -hmm. warts and all. Yeah. Um, I, I think you can get a much better idea of context and normal interruptions that anyone might face. You know, the doorbell rings or the dog's asking to go out just as you're about to hit the buy button or whatever. You know, maybe the baby that refuses to take its afternoon nap. All these things are natural. So you do get a much more realistic um, sort of context of use, if you like. Yeah. Um, and actually asking participants to reverse their camera, even for a short while, that's useful to actually understand their environment a bit more as well okay. so you know I've done that once or twice um, and I think all of this is really important to understand how think users what their environment's like how they interact with your app website whatever it might be in their normal setting so so remote research also has the value of you can see them using it in context whatever yeah. the system is and you can get them to look look around with a webcam you can get them to kind of explain where they are and sort of you get to hear about all the awkwardness of family life going on around them whilst they're trying to do this sessions you know allegedly they're meant to claw out this 45 minutes to an hour to do a session uh, but they're still getting distracted so you can imagine what it's like on a real day yes um, exactly yeah. yeah i think there's opportunities there as well to time the research um around uh, it, it might require some um research in advance of that to understand mm -hmm. well when is it typically that people will do a particular online shop or when might they interact with social media um perhaps it's after the children have gone to bed 
and they've got some quiet time. So actually the remote research doesn't rely on office times, it doesn't rely on lab space being available at a certain time either. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of, you can get a lot more out of it than you would if you just got them into a lab in an arbitrary time, an arbitrary uh, setting sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and you know, so it sounds like remote research is a good idea and it's lots of value to it. Um, what kind of projects would be impractical to run via remote user testing? Um, well, this is a tricky one, actually, Stuart, because inclusive research is just so, so important. But actually, it's proving difficult to capture what's really happening when the participants are working with assistive technology, mm -hmm. because you might be able to capture what's going on on their screen, but not the interaction with the assistive technology. Okay. So, yeah, so I, I haven't, I'd be delighted to hear if anybody can come up with um, their experiences where they've, they've actually made this this work and, and very successfully. Um, I mean, accessibility research, it really is so vitally important, but I think it's quite specialised as well. So I've tended to use specialist recruiters and researchers for that. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd love to hear how other people have gone on with it. So in that sense, uh, that would have to be face to face in a lab or within their home as opposed to doing it remotely, simply because you can't see what's happening with the assistive tech. Yeah. You can't you see how they're using mm -hmm. it. Yeah, correct. Um, you don't get the full picture. And w which assistive technologies w haven't worked when you've tried it or if you just, um, you know, was there anyone in particular? Because I know that Zoom texts, uh, when we've tried to record it in a lab using Moray, uh, it just records the screen at regular size. It doesn't actually zoom in. So you've got to take the out visual output from the graphics card, plug it back into the computer and record it that way. Uh, so I'm guessing if they're streaming their screen, it might just stream the screen, the whole screen and not the zoomed in version, in which case yes. you're not getting a sense of what they're seeing and things like that. So Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. I mean, not cool for them, but I mean, it's an interesting insight that we wouldn't have got otherwise. Um, are there any other kind of projects to impractical or is it mainly just accessibility? Focus groups can be challenging, um, but <laughs> they're challenging in person. Yes, yeah. they are. That's fair to say. Yeah. Um, but they are certainly possible. I think the challenges really are around keeping order, making sure everybody gets to speak because you haven't got the visual cues that you might have if you're in a room together. Yeah. Um, so so how do you manage that? You know, making sure that everybody gets the chance to speak. There has to be a proper sort of order and um, some ground rules. And I mean that that uh, not not in a, um, a dictatorial sort of way, but so that everybody understands. Oh, if you've got something to say, you know, using gestures to, you know, um, or um, emojis, whatever it is to raise your hand um, when you've got something to say, possibly. So it makes it a little stilted and maybe not quite as natural. Yeah. Um, but it, but certainly it can be done. Yes, face to face is better. But, you know, we don't have that option right now. And we, what, we don't want to cancel all the focus groups or workshops and things that we've got planned. So it's a, a way of finding finding our way around that, being creative, uh, digital whiteboards. Um, there are things like um, I'm trying to think some of the digital whiteboards that actually allow you to sort of put post-its up, if you like, um, and everybody's got a different colored pen and you can drag okay. and drop. And yeah, there are ways of being able to do that. So it's impractical, but it's not impossible. Is Absolutely. Yes. Cool. Um, so, I mean, we've gone into a lot of detail now about know what remote user testing is what it's good for what you can learn from it now let's um kind of break down how you go about running your sessions um so the first question is how do you prepare for remote user testing sessions 
I think much of the preparation is going to be the same, regardless of whether it's face to face or remote. And actually, whether it's moderated or unmoderated, to be honest, um, okay. it's gonna, yeah, it's going to depend on what you're trying to find out, um, what you're going to ask participants to do or look at or tell us or maybe even show us. So I think a lot of that is the upfront um, preparation. And then that's what's going to determine, once again, what is the best research methodology and then which is the best approach. So methodology I'm referring to here as being, well, is it a card sort? Is it an in-depth interview? Is it a usability test? And then the approach being, OK, does it need to be face to face or can it be remote? And actually, if it's remote, which is the best, which is the most appropriate, not necessarily the best, but the most appropriate, moderated or unmoderated? Mm-hmm. And so when you go about doing it, is there anything that you need to consider when choosing tasks? Like, are there any particular tasks that are or aren't appropriate for remote sessions? Um, I would say if they are likely to be of a sensitive nature, at the very least, they need to be moderated so that you are still sharing webcams. You can empathise. And you can continue with that rapport that you've taken trouble to build up up front. So if the tasks or the questions are likely to be sensitive um, and evoke some kind of evoke some kind of emotional reaction, then that's really important. I certainly wouldn't want to do that where um, the participants sitting there on their own that that I wouldn't want to do for sure. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I, I don't really think so. Um, a moderated test need to be really clear, not open to misinterpretation, because, um, you know, you, you don't want to launch a whole load of tests, unmoderated tests, only to find that they haven't quite understood what you were getting at. So it can be a tricky balance, actually, between giving enough instruction, but not actually leading them. Um, so, you know, pilot sessions here are, are really are important, really critical. So how would you make your tasks quite explicit? Um for an unmoderated session? Like what would be a just off the head example of a good task for an unmoderated session? Um, a recent example, when I was testing for orientation, so there were various visual cues that I wanted to see if they were obvious. And this was across three different devices, really. So it was a sort of desktop, laptop, tablet, and also smartphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just provided a link and then asked the question, well, where are you and how do you know? Tell me everything that is helping you understand where you are within the site. Oh, that's cool. So you're, 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 being, you're, you're basically getting to comment on what they're seeing, but without pointing them at a specific area. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're not being specifically telling them what you're asking. Them. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great way of doing it. Um, is, would you have done that any differently for a moderated session? I mean, it sounds like you could have delivered that in pretty much the same way or similar way. Yes, that's true. Could have done. Yeah. I mean, although you'd probably guide them to that page previously, wouldn't you, rather than just bung them straight onto it? Um, um, yes. And again, it, it it depends. And I know that we'll sort of come on to, to um, or possibly we'll come on to more sort of how you structure a test as well. But if it's face to face, you're going to possibly have longer you may have um, a chance to include more in a session whereas if it's moderated it might be shorter so you're uh, 
probably not mixing it up too much. So I might have included a bit more about navigation with the orientation tasks. Whereas mm -hmm. if it's a little bit trimmed down, then I might just focus on uh, on less, I guess. Yeah. I think the key thing for all of these is um, to prepare properly. You've got a plan and have a checklist um, and allowing enough time to check everything is ready. So, you know, that's the prototype. If there are images, maybe it's login details, data that you need for filling in forms and, you know, and any other tools that you're going to use. Um, all of that is, is key to preparing for, for the sessions. Um, and then thinking specifically about moderated sessions, thinking about how you're going to transition from one stimuli to another, if that's important. So, you know, just as an example, how are you going to get links across to them if you want them to click them? Um, and you want them to click them just in time rather than sending them in advance, particularly if you're trying to test first impressions on something and you don't want them seeing web pages, for example, too soon. Um, are you going to be asking them some questions, get them to look at a website and then maybe get them to go to a card sorting tool? So all of this preparation is, is really important. And, you know, it, I'm sure it goes without saying that running pilot is really essential here and not just to check the tech, but actually validate the test plan. Uh, the timings, the structure, is it a natural flow, um, and so on. Um, so, and as well as uh, making sure that, um, particularly if this is unmoderated, would be if the questions and the tasks have been interpreted in the way you intended. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. I mean, how do you pilot for remote user testing sessions? Like, who, who, do, you, who do you get to do it? And, you know, how do you go about doing that? Um, I would usually get somebody who's not involved in the project and probably not involved in research or design. So very often, as I did actually with training materials, uh, if these were user guides and things that I'd write up afterwards, is I would get somebody who is an administrator, messengers even I used to use at that time. So mm -hmm. actually running it in the normal way, um, they don't have to necessarily be quite the target audience if that's, you know, is something you're going to recruit for, but at least understanding um, if they are interpreting the questions in the way that you intended at, at, yeah, and the tech setup. Yeah, so just um, you just need a, a human being that knows how to use a computer and you run it with those. Yep. And um, but do you need to dial remotely to them? I mean, yeah. so how do you handle the remote part of the pilot test? Do you just run it the same as a regular your regular remote sessions or? You know, yeah, I would run it in exactly the way as I intend to with the full complement of participants okay and even it's a real, real dry run mm -hmm. so with the unmoderated sessions you'd design your study you'd send it to the your pilot participant they'd do it and then you'd see whether you're getting the right results back absolutely oh cool now if i was using um a platform where there is a panel which mm -hmm. i do as well um then actually that's really useful because you can then actually tweak it as well you do your pilot you can tweak it if necessary um, and you may be able to make use of that pilot. You may need to, to just use it as a learning and then um, continue with the main study. Whereas if you're doing this with somebody who isn't necessarily the target audience, then that's almost a throwaway. Yeah, but either way, you're still getting feedback on the structure of the session Absolutely. and things like that. Yeah, checking and the tech and validating the, um, the, the, the line of questioning, really. Yeah. And speaking of tech, tech, what sort of technology is required to conduct remote user testing sessions? 
Well, that's a good question. A really good question. Um, I think as a minimum, you're looking to have a camera, you know, webcam, mm -hmm. screen sharing, audio and a recorder, screen and voice recorder. Right. I think that's that's the minimum that you're looking for. Um, I mean, there are lots of tools that we're already using day to day to connect with people, aren't we? Um, and particularly at the moment, as we're sort of working remotely and still needing to stay connected. So, yes, I'm, you know, talking about Skype, maybe Google Hangouts, things like Slack. Um, now, some of those have got additional features that you have to pay for, but it makes it all possible. But then you have got companies that are offering remote research platforms and they provide a whole host of features. So it's going to depend on budgets, I think, largely, and how much research is going to be conducted um, over time that actually is the investment worth it. And, you know, that, that cost versus value benefit that that's going to bring. Um, I mean, some of these uh, platforms are going to offer both moderated and unmoderated testing. Um, they will have probably a bank of templates that you can tweak and you can save and build up your own. Um, they'll have metrics built in, but again, you'll be able to add your own. Um, a lot of them will transcribe now as well. I know they're not always the best in the world, um, particularly if there are some strong accents or maybe um, if English is a second language, but they are a really good starting point. Um, and actually, a lot of them now have got note taking and analysis tools that really do make the job of uh, synthesizing insights and, and actually sharing them as well with uh, stakeholders makes that job much quicker and easier as well. Um, and then, of course, you've got the other tools that we, we mentioned earlier, such as card sorting, tree testing, AB, multivariate testing, whiteboards and all manner of other things that you can use as well. And it really can be combined and a bit of a mix and match, a pick a mix almost. So, um, you know, fundamentally, as long as you've got a webcam and uh, something that record audio on the screen, you're you're good. Uh, then you can sort of graduate to well, you'll need something like Skype to facilitate a phone, like a video chat and screen sharing. And I think Skype's got recording built in now, which is what we're actually using That's to right. record this podcast. It's a miraculous, and you don't have to pay extra for it. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> but then, not that we're working for Skype, I'm not. Uh, on you or not um okay. and we're moving on and the but yeah but there are these other platforms so if you want more than that and you want to have the analytics you want to have the templates you want to be able to run a b sessions and god knows what that's where the value of of going for a bigger more established platform is um and like you just mentioned there is you know you can just pick and choose which of these techniques you use depending on the project and its requirements Absolutely. I think the analysis can be a really big task. We've talked a lot about conducting, preparing for and conducting the research sessions themselves, but analysing the insights can be, um, you know, really quite arduous. Um, and that's where some of these platforms um, really do help, both in terms of um, the time that it saves and the effort that it saves. Um, but making sure you don't miss anything because you can tag things, you know, you can jump from um, task to task within one particular video, for example. But equally, if it's task based, that allows you to say, right, show me all the participants conducting, uh, sorry, performing this particular task. 
Yeah, so you can split basic. You can basically just skim through different tasks. Oh, you can do. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. And very often you can download into spreadsheets and things like that, so you can then start to analyze or manipulate the data or whatever in in, in any way that you you, you want to, um, and create graphs and other visual representations of the insights as well. So analysis is a big part of it. I think that um, if it is just simply, you know, if you're flying solo, you don't have note takers and maybe all you've got is a recording mm -hmm. um, it definitely would pay to have um, your own code if you like of being able to capture things quickly as you go um, I certainly think with moderated uh, sorry remote testing I'm talking moderated here um, it's more important than ever not to have your head down taking notes in the way that you might be tempted to hopefully not but might be tempted to in a face-to-face -face. you can get away with a little bit there but I think in a uh, remote session it's really important to um to yeah, stay but, full attention um on the participant yeah because they don't want to be looking at the bottom of uh, the top of your head whilst you're you know through your webcam whilst you're making notes i suppose and i'm guessing for those like it's all well and good people part of a big organization that has access to these big collaborative tools but you can still get the same quality of outputs it just requires a bit more effort without a bigger tool as you know uh, it just it, it will just make your life easier if you have them. Yes. Uh, if you're doing like a big project with lots of people, lots of users. Um, but typically, people charge. You know, either a, a, people have a site license for this thing, or if you know you're going to be doing a lot of remote testing for a client, you could charge it into the project or something like that, or just yes. to cover the cost and things like that. So there is ways and means around it. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so my next question is: Once you've got your technology sorted, you've started preparing your script and things. How do you go about recruiting participants for remote user testing sessions? Well, over the years, I've used different direct methods, so social media, intercept surveys, um, using customer databases. Um, but I do find that it's very time consuming and it can be a bit of a logistical headache. Um, mm -hmm. I think recruitment is quite an art, if I'm honest. Um, and so unless I'm using an existing panel, then I do prefer to try to use research recruitment companies. Um, yeah, I, I know that there's a cost associated with that, and sometimes that's quite significant, but I honestly do think that's outweighed by making sure that the researcher can focus on preparing for the testing rather than fiddling with last minute schedule changes and so on. Um, I'm sure we've all been waiting on final prototypes and fixes right down to the wire where we still need to then go and check it and set it up and everything. So having to deal with the logistics of uh, recruitment at the last minute as well is, is it, it, you know, is tricky. And we don't all have the luxury of having somebody in a more of an administrative role, perhaps, to, to handle that for us. Yeah, I mean, research ops, as I've discovered in the last two podcasts, is the term for the, the team behind that now. There's a sort of a logistical team that's supporting user researchers and they're being they're, they're known as research ops, which is quite an interesting thing. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I totally back up the idea of using a, an external panel because um, I've tried to research, uh, recruit an external re recruitment panel because I've tried to recruit directly uh, recently and it's just become quite challenging. Mm. Um, so at least panels have people ready to hand typically they can find the audiences you need if if they're not too niche like if you're looking for you know airline pilots that might be quite difficult but if you're looking at someone that goes on holiday four times a year less difficult it's kind of you know uh, you just have to know what you're shooting for really um, absolutely and so when you are recruiting for participants for 
remote sessions as opposed to face-to-face -face ones. Uh, is there anything that you need to consider that isn't relevant for face-to-face -face sessions, um, like around their sort of te technological proficiency or hardware or software they've got access to? I don't think so, because it's usually um, the research objectives that are going to determine who are the user groups and who am I looking for. And so they may be full personas or they may just be sort of more like the, the profiles of the people that I'm looking for. Um, I think the only thing I don't need to consider is whether people do need um, any special assistance, either getting into the building or actually sitting at a, um, a desk for a long period of time or any particular tech setup in the lab because if they're going to be working or using their you know their own setup they're always uh, already going to be set up and familiar with it. But what about in terms of you know uh, if you need to have a Skype call with them do you need to make sure when you recruit them that they have access to a decent internet connection uh, they've got access to a webcam and all that sort of thing does that need to be considered in the recruitment stage? Oh, yes, absolutely. And again, that would become part of um, a profile. Um, so as well as what device they have, so I'd make sure I had a, a good mix of devices, it would be asking some of the questions around um, yeah, a screener. <laughs> Essentially, it's yeah, the same. It's yeah. a screener. And that would actually filter out, you know, what they use, what they've got. Um, and I would actually, once we got to a point of... Um, whether this was with a actually via a recruiter, the questions that I would want them to be asking on my behalf yeah. um, would include um, making sure that they've got the technology. I might well ask um, the recruiter to check with participants and ask them to do a speed test to make sure that they had a good, strong internet connection. Yeah, and I suppose a good, strong internet connection is relative, so it depends on you know, where you are and things like that. And also as internet changes, you know, who knows what that means, but as long as it's got a strong high figure, you should be all right. Um, and so in terms of once you've found your users, um, you know, I mean, I suppose with a panel, I mean, that's, that's for the moderator sessions with a panel, it's implied that they have the technology to hand, isn't it? So if I was using um, a recruitment company, who are going to put me in touch with them and I'm going to send them links to the session, then I would ask them to take care of all of that for me. But if I was actually going to be using a panel where um, it's almost a first come first serve, um, I can put a screener in. It has all of the profile requirements in there, um, but then it will go out to the panel and on a first come first serve basis, they're going to apply. By answering the screener questions, it will whittle out whether or not they are appropriate. But they will all have been tested by that organisation um, to make sure that they can cope, that their internet speeds can cope, that they've got the correct devices and so on. Yeah, so, so there is a that's an additional benefit to using a panel as opposed to a recruitment provider. Um, you know, is the fact that they're already vetted and you can just find people you know they'll basically self-select based on the screener or you know the panel will help you refine down to find the right users that kind of thing yeah um, that's that's correct and it's also very much easier to be able to re-engage with those same participants or conduct a multi-part test with them if you want to as well and how many participants would you recommend using for a remote user testing study 
Um, well, five is still a magic number for me. Mm -hmm. um, I know there are different thoughts around whether or not that's enough, but from my experience, it is better to test few participants, but often, you know, that iterative testing. Um, and actually, the number five for me relates to each user group. Um, now, that might be based on demographics or devices, operating systems, or any kind of combination of those. So it's very rarely just a straight five. It's five of each um, distinct user group. Um, and I find what that lets me do is check to see what findings I can generalize mm -hmm. across all of them. And then what actually is specific to a particular group? You know, is it specific to the device or something else? Um, you know, so, for example, I might find that a value proposition is really clear to everybody, but something specific, something more task driven works really well on desktop, but might see smartphone users really, really struggling with it. And would you say that five is enough uh, per user type for unmoderated sessions as well? Or do you want uh, more quantity in that regard, you know, in that situation? No, I, I stick with five. Um, I find what's very, very helpful there as well. Now, you do always do a pilot, even with the, un well, particularly actually with the unmoderated. Mm -hmm. But what I do tend to do, if the platform will only allow me to say, for example, um, smartphone, um, it, they don't you can usually drill down more but if you would just uh, sort of put your test out sort of fairly widely I might see what comes back and yeah. if I find I have too many of the same type then I will add to it okay so, it's okay, kind so of... I will fill in gaps almost so I might find ah oh okay let me just see I've got three users within a fairly fairly similar age group all with iPhones so actually now I'll just add a couple on and I'll, I'll bring my numbers up to five but equally I can reject yeah or I can replace, or I might think actually in this instance, it's not conclusive, I need some more. Yes, you start off around five or with, you know, aiming for five, but you can kind of nudge it depending on what, you know, what, what data you're getting back when you're yes. using a panel, uh, specifically for our moderated sessions. Oh, that's cool to know, like you can, you know, just, and it's not not so much about you want it to give you the right answer. You just want it want to be able to get the right kind of users to give you that data back so that you can make the right kind of assumptions, like design decisions. Yes, absolutely. OK, so what audiences can be reached through remote user testing? I'd pretty much say anyone who's got an Internet connection, to be honest. Um, I mean, Internet speeds can vary greatly, so that's important um, and it is really wise um, to help participants run that, that speed test in advance, as we said. Time zones are important, but we can reach them. Um, you know, these are all considerations, but um, it, it's really people that are online. I think the audience that I would probably avoid for all the reasons that we spoke about earlier were those using assistive technology. Um, it's vitally important, but I, I'm not sure that this is the best method of reaching them. Mm -hmm. I think there's also possibly some cultural differences and legislation and things like that you you do need to at least be aware of and take into account it, uh, you know, on a project by project basis really. Okay um, and when you say legislation is that like the sort of GDPR or something or are there other things that you should be considering? I'm thinking more about um, it could be a platform, maybe a social media platform um, that is vetoed in a particular country, for example, oh, okay. yeah. or types of sites that can't be visited. Yeah, so you can't really test on something that isn't allowed in China, for instance, because that'll get yeah. someone arrested. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's nice to consider that, really. Um, cool. Uh, and anything else on audiences before we proceed? 
But really, I think it is just that if they're online um, and they meet the profile, we're not saying that everybody needs to be um, sort of expert users. In fact, quite the opposite. Sometimes we are really wanting to test a, a variety of, of levels of um, IT literacy, um, but being online it, it, it is the key. Yeah, I think as long as they fundamentally they have a webcam or a microphone and they're online, you know, you you can That's reach right. them really. Yeah. Okay. And so once you've you've found your participants and you start running your sessions, what would be the, what would be the best way to capture informed consent from participants uh, when working remotely? Um, if it's um, through. A recruitment agency then I would usually get that from um, get them to take care of that for me um, I usually send them a form get them to go through it and then on the day it's really <clears throat> excuse me really then just a question of making sure that they are still comfortable reminding them of the key points you know that they they can pause what's the purpose of the research uh, how the data is going to be shared all of that kind of thing really um, okay. when it comes to moderated um, sessions that I've recruited directly um, I would send them the form in the same way and I would usually email that to them with joining details so you know here's the link to join the session or whatever it might be and I would also include in there something that is saying accepting the invitation the email right. invitation to the session is actually acceptance um, um, of the consent or it's you are actually giving consent but once again i would remind them of that at the beginning of the session as well and obviously ultimately giving them the option to change their minds oh that's a great idea so you'd, you'd kind of you'd get the uh, the recruitment provider to kind of get consent from them but also when you invite them to participate in the session you'd say by accepting this invite and participating in this session you're providing consent but then you'd just remind them in, this, in a part of the session where you typically read them the, the consent form in a face-to-face -face session, you just kind of give them a reminder of what they've consented to yes. uh, in, a, in a moderated one. And what about unmoderated sessions? Like, is it, um, does the panel provider handle that for you? Yes, they do. Um, by signing up to a panel, that's generally taken care of. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think one of the other key things that I would remind as well is um, about confidentiality. And I'm thinking on both sides there. So reassuring about their own confidentiality, but also the sort of the non-disclosure agreement type stuff where what you see today is confidential. Please don't talk about it. That kind of oh, that's that reminder a good, as well. Yeah, because a lot of people kind of it's it's kind of implied, but I don't think it's it's uh, drilled home as much. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it really depends on what's what you're being tested and how secret it is. Um, but it's important. To, it's probably a good idea to include that in everything anyway, just to be on the safe side. So once you've run your session and you want to pay your participant, how do you go about doing this if you're running sessions remotely? Well, the beauty of using recruiters is all that's taken care of. And actually, the same goes for using existing panels. Um, but if I need to pay participants direct, so really participants that I've recruited directly through social media or something like that, then mm -hmm. I usually opt for digital gift cards. Um, I can easily email them and it's really easy to do that days giving these days, giving people um, a choice of outlets as well. OK, but not um, you wouldn't uh, sort of bank transfer um, cash. It would mainly be a gift card like uh, Amazon, yes. for instance. And yes. um, yeah, well, I mean, one thing Market Research Society guidelines say you can't give a gift card for the company that you're representing. So if you're testing for Argos, for instance, you can't give them an Argos gift card. That's um, right. Worth, worth remembering. Um, and in terms of the sort of remuneration, how do incentives for remote user testing sessions compare to face to face ones? Um, so face to face is probably like. You know, 50 to 75 pounds, depending on the session and the type of user. 
uh, is it's about a similar figure I mean also it depends yeah it really depends but that's kind of the range mm. that we're currently paying yeah it, it does depend you're right um I would say generally speaking the remote sessions they are requiring less um I use the term effort loosely here for participants, but essentially they haven't got to travel to a specific venue. Yeah, yeah um, uh, they haven't um, haven't got to sort of negotiate public transport or parking. So it's actually going to save them both time and money. Now, that's yeah. usually reflected in the incentive. But then again, it is going to depend on the complexity of the, the test, you know, what you're asking them to do, the length of the session and actually the user group as well. You know, I mean, business users typically um, are in a, a more of a niche group or harder to recruit. And yeah. so they are going to get uh, a slightly higher incentive anyway. But that's the same. That's the same as with face to face anyway. Yeah. But so it's basically uh, it's on par with face to face, but minus the travel costs sort of uh, factor, if you will. It's kind of, you know, uh, it will be more for business types or airline pilots or brain surgeons than it would for someone that flies on holiday four times a year, simply because these people are harder to find. Yeah. Um, but you might not have to reimburse them as much simply because they're not having to make their way to a physical space in time. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. cool. I think that that's fair enough. I mean, unmoderated tests, though, um, and actually moderated if it's using a panel, um, yeah. that then actually that that's taken care of usually, uh, as I say, by. Um, it goes through the panel. Yeah, right, through those panels. And would unmoderated be a lower incentive to moderated for remote sessions? Um, maybe a little, really, because the sessions are shorter. You know, yeah. we've actually got participants are doing this in their own time. They're they're sort of uh, they don't have you to to cajole them along, essentially. Yeah. Um, so actually, it, it is necessary to keep shorter tests uh, mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, because because they're not having to have this sort of conversation and the follow ups and things, it'll be more concise and they'll just yeah, it, yeah. It, it, they're paid less accordingly. Yeah, right. there's not an enormous amount to choose between it, uh, between incentives there, but it, it is reflected in time and effort, I think. Great. And um, cool. So speaking of time and effort, uh, when you go about running a typical remote moderated user testing session, uh, what is the process that you follow? To be honest, it's pretty much the same as face to face. Yes, there are a few extra bits and pieces. I mean, I always... Um, running the session itself, I always start with introductions, you know, taking that time to build rapport, going over the, um, the informed consent, that kind of housekeeping stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but then I also do make sure I switch on my webcam and I ask them to do the same, at least for that early, early bit, build up that rapport, you know, even if we, we do have to kill them later. Um, actually, I've just realised what I've said. I do mean the webcams and not the participants <laughs> when I say that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, was I was wondering, but, you know, that's fair enough. Um, you know, that's uh, if I've shown you something confidential, you know, it's right, you know, and I'll have to shoot you. Um, I've shown you, so I'll have to shoot you. Yeah, that was um, no, the NDA. So <laughs> um, but I go over the purpose of the test, the structure, the timings, all the things that actually I'd expect to do in a face to face anyway. Um, yeah. The housekeeping is possibly a little bit more about um, what to do if there's any technical issues during the test. So, you know, I would cover things um, in advance as well, but reminders here. Um, well, what to do if we lose connection, you know, and what to do if we lose sound. And I'd always kind of have that plan B. Um, what if they can't? share their screen well maybe I can share mine and they can talk me through what they would do you know it's always having that plan b I think yeah. um 
I certainly take extra time to reassure them that, you know, it's okay to pause if there's technical issues or something ex unexpected crops up or is that doorbell rings unexpectedly and mm -hmm. so on. Um, and then depending on the test, um, I would actually go over accessing the different technology. So I would make sure that they're comfortable with sharing screens and that they know where the chat is and how I'm going to send links across to them. And actually also just checking if they do need to then go out to access um, anything else, maybe as a card sorting uh, or a whiteboard or something of that nature. So, so part of your you know, initial conversation with the participant will be getting them primed to Absolutely. understand, yeah. you know, oh, let's run through the, let's say Skype, for instance, here's where you're going to do this, here's going to do that. And you mentioned about being ready in case they like the call drops out. Would you have like a work mobile number that you share with them so that yeah. they can get in touch separately and things like that? So yes. there are means to get in touch offline if, for instance, the thing breaks down and you need to get back in touch and reacquainted and find out what's going on. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, using chat or making sure you've got a, black, a backup platform for them um, to be able to use. Yeah. Right. And I think the other thing um, I, I, that I think is important as well is um, making sure if it's if it's relevant is making sure that they know how to mask their camera, even if it's a piece of paper in front of it, if they are going to be entering any personal data so that you don't capture that on the video and on screen. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and the other thing I was just thinking, you mentioned that if they can't share their screen for every reason, you'll share yours. Does that mean they kind of do a bit of show and tell? So you sort of, where would you click and you'd have to do that for them? So it's a bit pretty Wizard much. of Oz. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And um, but I'm, I, I think once they get into it, it will still work, wouldn't it? It's kind of, it wouldn't put people off too much. It's better than abandoning. Yeah, exactly. At least you're getting something from the session. And um, when you're going through remote sessions, how do you manage to keep people to time? In the same way as I would face to face, actually, is allowing if they do start to to sort of drift off slightly is just finding nice ways to bring them back on task. Um, you know, so it is Oh, that's really interesting to know. But just thinking about and then just using those those cues that you would actually use in face to face just to bring them back on task. Yeah. OK. And you mentioned earlier that you um you know, you'd spend the beginning of the session getting them primed with the technology. Mm. Do you allow extra time for that when you schedule the session or is that included within the bulk of the session? Um, when I time the sessions and I usually aim for a maximum of about 40 minutes mm -hmm. um, for those. Um, and, and the reason I, I do that is because unlike face to face, they're going to be sitting almost glued to their screens. You know, there's less opportunity to move around, have a shuffle in their seat, look away and so on. So I think it's really important to look after them in that way. Yeah. Um, and within that 40 minutes, I've usually built in all of the intro, the quick tech check and so on. Um, I mean, there is a tendency to want to try and cram in as much as possible. But I, I actually do think that's false economy. Yeah. Um, you know, feedback from a tired, uncomfortable participant is going to have, you know, much less value. I think. Um, and actually, you really want them to have a positive experience as well, rather than just wanting to get this thing over and done with. Um, you know, and, and if you are interacting with or getting them to interact with something that represents your brand, you know, they're going to consider that to be sort of one of the touch points, if you like. Um, so I, I build that time in, um, but I also build in additional time at the end of the session, a buffer, more than oh, okay. I would normally on a face to face. So, you know, that's going to allow for 
if there were any tech issues, if it took a bit longer to sort the tech out at the beginning, maybe there's tech issues, tech issues that, that mean they join late. Um, yeah. And if they're prepared to roll on a little bit later, then maybe you can still do that. Um, but it means that way that you've still got the time at the end of the session to be able to tidy up, reset, um, take notes if you need to do that as well and actually fully prepare for the next one. And so you mentioned you, you, you aim to have 40 minute sessions. Does that mean the participant is scheduled for 40 minutes or they're scheduled for the hour? So you've got that sort of buffer and you know that you can kind of run that 40 minutes anywhere within the hour. I usually sort of schedule it for uh, for the hour. Right. OK, that makes sense. Uh, but you know that everything you can do, you need to do can be done within those 40 minutes. Yes. So it can be, yes. Oh, that's great. And how many how many remote sessions could you would you be able to do in a day or do you typically try and do in a day? Um, if this is moderated, I aim for five mm -hmm. because that actually is going to allow me to, uh, to have that decent buffer in between Yeah, and to be writing up the notes and also allowing myself a chance to, um, have a lunch break. <laughs> yeah. Have a lunch break, have a breather, <laughs> have, a, have all have the comfort life. breaks. Yeah. 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 But also that, the garden. Yeah. Yeah. That, that chance also to do a bit of a mop up at the end of the day as well of the, you know, sort of whiteboarding exercise almost yeah key findings and things mm -hmm. and i suppose mm -hmm. un unmoderated it doesn't really matter because they they just come in while you sleep well maybe yeah, not that's I right depends yeah. on the participants are online cool yeah. um and i suppose i mean that covers the process unless there was anything else you wanted to unpack for us not really i don't think so great um so i mean everything has you know as we've discussed um how we'd go about remote testing now I mean, what challenges should people be aware of when they're running remote user testing sessions? Um, well, I would say that technology can always present unexpected problems. So it is always having that plan B, maybe even a plan C if you can. Um, and just as face to face, things happen that are out of the participants control. Um, they turn up late or they don't turn up at all, um, you know, and that can be down to technical issues as well. So that that, that will always be the case. Um, but I think the challenges uh, to overcome that, I, I would say I, I tend to get into the session early, check everything, even if it's, uh, you know, it, it isn't the first session of the day, things can go wrong between sessions um so I, I think for me it's about having confidence that everything's okay on my side um because i think also that building of rapport if you're calm and uh, overcoming any little blips as they come um that's going to put the participant at ease and keep them reassured um i think also that another little challenge here is it's possible to live stream sessions so a moderated session can be streamed either to a group of observers in the same room or maybe even they're not in the same room um, and actually that would certainly be um, the same case wouldn't it at the moment that they would be remote um, yeah. in a situation like that it's really important to check well in advance how the technology is going to work um, and I would definitely recommend running a short pilot with those observers um, and setting some very clear ground rules and helping them understand why they've got those ground rules um, and they'll understand why. Um, and that's things like um, how daunting it would be for a participant to realize that they've got all these people watching them. Um, it's much harder to ignore or forget than it is when you're face-to-face uh, -face where you've got them in an observation room. Yeah, next door so it's about you know switching off webcams and hiding um making sure that they remain silent 
and they're on mute throughout. Um, and if they're doing any any chat, I'm sort of talking uh, online typing type chat, um, is just to make sure that that's not visible by participants as well. And if possible, use a different platform altogether. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You're building a great rapport with your participant, but then they can see the team having a laugh at their expense in the chat window. It's not really going to give them a, a good good feeling about the company or what they're testing, is it really? No, um, and it has that has happened. I've not, unfortunately, I haven't uh, had that happen to me, but I have heard of instances where, you know, it's, it's absolutely disastrous. There's no, no way back from something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's t terrible. Um, and you mentioned earlier about the whole having a separate phone line um, on the go just in case people need to contact you separately. Um, yeah, I mean, so it sounds like there's a lot to be concerned about and having that 20 minute buffer either side of your session as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to avoid uh, falling foul of these challenges. Mm, definitely, definitely. I think that, as I say, having that backup plan in case things do fall over, um, recovering from a setback does have an impact on the participant, there's no question. And that, that calm, organised, have a little laugh about it, you know, blame the technology, puts them at ease. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not normally spooked by a little blip. Yeah, and I suppose once you've done a few of these sessions, you'll know how to compensate if something falls down. Um, so it's just about sort of, um, you know, the practice makes perfect, really, isn't it? And being yeah. able to having these strategies ready to apply if something falls over and you can't test with a particular platform because it's down for whatever reason. Mm, I think that that's right. And and again, the preparation up front of building that rapport um, can really reap benefits as you get into the session. Great. Um, so, I mean, it sounds, I mean, you've shared a lot of useful insights and it sounds like you've got a breadth of knowledge about this area. Um, throughout your time doing remote user testing sessions, have you had any memorable experiences you'd like to share with us? Uh, numerous, numerous. What do I choose to to round up with. Um, I think one of the funniest was several years ago um, when a notification popped up on the participant's uh, screen and that was from their partner um, who'd been away and was very much looking forward to getting home that evening. Um, I won't elaborate oh. but I'll leave that to your imagination. Um, yeah it was awkward for a moment or two um, but yeah I think <laughs> I was able to say something like oh it's fine I, I'm pretty good at unseeing things and you know we both laughed and, and uh, carried on you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I did reassure them that I would only be sharing insights that related to the research, you know, and uh, at the end of the session, uh, rather than just ignore it. Sometimes it's better to acknowledge something, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we just both laughed and, and it wasn't a problem. But um, uh, it, I did actually learn from that. Maybe that's something that could go into the preparation, which is uh, at the beginning of any moderated session, um, is to remind participants that um, actually do close anything that you wouldn't want to be seen or you wouldn't want to share oh wow so that's a good thing to, i mean mm. i mean that's that's a funny thing to happen i feel sorry for your participant <laughs> it sounds like you handed it quite gracefully um yeah i mean having that little prompt like you know hide anything you don't want people to see you don't want your whatsapp to pop up mid thing sounds like browsing great... history maybe yeah. oh yes i've had that one so i was doing remote <laughs> user research for a, a national broadcaster and uh, someone was sort of going in there and he went into their bookmarks and uh, there were things in there that you wouldn't want to share with your wife, perhaps. Um, <laughs> and it was kind of like, oh, OK, but I didn't mention it because I think uh, he didn't notice that I noticed. And I didn't want to kind of make him aware of the fact I'd noticed because I think that would have been even more awkward. So at that point, I just carried on with a session and just pretended I was looking the other way or something. But, yeah, that was kind of a bit uncomfortable because you're like, oh, uh, and it really is a window in people's into people's lives, isn't it? Um, yes, absolutely. 
But I think maybe even then in this sort of when you send them the consent form, you could also have a, like, a prompt about yeah. Uh, be, you know, make sure things are turned off make sure things are hidden you know that you don't want people to see you know we are going to see your whole desktop or whatever or your browser at least uh make sure you do you hide but you know this is why things happen and as long as you behave, behave maturely um it should be fine yeah yeah cool. it is it is easier to acknowledge something as i said rather than pretend it didn't happen um yeah, this That's was. What I, found. Yeah. I think. Yeah, this guy. I don't think uh, he would. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. I think if I'd have acknowledged it, I think I'd have just made him uncomfortable. Oh really? So I just, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, we we sort of had a rapport, and the rapport was kind of icy. So I was like, yeah, let's not mention it. Anyway, moving on. Um, so yeah, I mean, looking forward, what's next on your radar? What are you going to be doing next? Um, well, within our de design team, we're going to be taking the insights from the baseline research uh, around wayfinding that I'm doing, um, then going to come up with some potential solutions. Um, then I'll be doing benchmarking research, uh, so possibly some A-B or even multivariate testing, um, just to see which of the solutions works best for participants and addresses the problems that uh, we will have identified. Um, and that's obviously before too much effort goes into development work. Um, some of them might be low fidelity prototypes to start with, and then we might move on to things that are a little more polished. Um, and I may well engage our analytics team um, who will measure the impacts of potential changes as well. That's going to give us some big data and, and confidence. Cool. So, I mean, yeah, busy exciting. times ahead. Yeah, 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 indeed. Exciting. Brilliant. Thanks again for speaking to us and, uh, yeah, I look forward to well, a speaking to you again soon, but also next month's episode. I'm not sure what we'll be talking about, but um, you'll see it on social media soon. I'll look out for it. And thanks very much. Really enjoyed it, Stuart. It's been great. And um, yeah, it, it's lovely that, that we all get to share knowledge and experience like this. And I'm sure other people will have had more experience than me in certain areas. And it would be great to get that in a thread as well, particularly, uh, again, if um, anybody's had um, some, some really good experiences of remote accessibility testing. Thank you. Brilliant. So you hear that, everyone? Remote accessibility testing. If you know how to do it, get in touch because we'd be very keen to know. Thanks a lot again, Ruth, and we'll speak to you soon. Fantastic. Cheers. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye.